0: We're looking with hope for the coming of Jesus, too. But we're looking for the hope of His second coming. He is coming to rescue this world and to make it right. And that is our hope. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the Associate Pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. It's hard to believe that Christmas season is upon us already, isn't it? It is for me anyway. Um, I was at a dinner this past week and uh, we began to sing, sing our first Christmas carols of the season and it wasn't even December, it was November. felt kind of weird singing Christmas carols in November, but, but, but we did. Did you know that it was for the first several hundred years of the church, there's really no record that we celebrated the birth of Jesus. There's no written stuff really that that was all that important to us. Um, Though it had been really important to God's people, the waiting for and the looking for the coming of Messiah. The earliest written evidence we have of celebrating the advent of Jesus as a babe in Bethlehem came around the 4th century, the late 300s. Um, but it became, after that, it just be, it be almost like a deluge, right, of writings, and, and it just became more and more important to believers to observe and celebrate the first coming of the Lord Jesus. So the Advent remembrance, this Advent remembrance has begun for us this year, and uh, so I thought it would be good for us to to celebrate that, to commemorate that, to remind ourselves over this month just how important the first coming of Jesus was for us. So uh, years ago, when Ann and I first became a part of the family here, there was a sister who was a part of us. Her name was Lona Ellis. Lona's been gone for about 10 years now. But in those early years, when Ann and I first joined the family, Lona every year would lead us uh, in the Advent season with the Advent wreath and the Advent candles which you see on the table there uh, in front of us and so we're going to we're going to use the Advent wreath this year to celebrate uh, to celebrate Christmas. Now you may not be familiar with the Advent wreath because it's used primarily in more liturgical churches but it, it really has become a Christian tradition that spans across all different various Christian groupings. The Advent wreath with its candles are lit each week to help remind us of something about the birth of the Lord Jesus. Over time, the wreath itself came to came to symbolize things. I think this is kind of an add-on, but the, the wreath is round. And so people said, well, that just reminds us of the eternal nature of God. Uh, the wreath is made out of evergreens, so that reminds us of the everlasting nature of God's love for us, right? Well, those are those are true things, right? But the, the nature of the Advent wreath and was the lighting of the candles. And we're going to light them each week. The the original Advent wreath and candles, no one really knows how it started. Again, uh, historians said that people back in those days, they would use wreaths and candles to decorate their home during during the winter months. But the first writing, or the first, yeah, the first written record we have of such a thing as an Advent wreath came came in the it early, or early, early 1800s by a German Protestant pastor named Johann Henrik. A witcher, and I'm not sure I'm saying his name right, but he worked with uh, the urban poor children, and they were constantly asking him when Christmas was coming. When Christmas was coming, and so he took a wagon wheel and he fashioned it into a wreath. He wrapped the outside of the wheel with uh, with garland, and then he put uh, twenty red candles on it and four white candles, symbolizing Sundays, and that way he would mark down each day, so the kids would have an idea of when when Christmas was coming. No one knows knows if that was really the first Advent wreath or if he'd seen it somewhere else and fashioned it into that, right? But that's the first written record that we have of it. But it's, it became a custom there in Germany and eventually spread, spread around the world. Uh, because it's a tradition, there's no, there's no, um, That's the word I'm looking for. There's no exact way of doing the Advent wreath, but there is a more prominent way, and we're going to follow that one during the month of of December. So today is the first Sunday of Advent, and and so what you do with the Advent wreath is that you light one of these four candles each Sunday of, of of the month of December. We're going to light the first candle of the Advent wreath, and the first candle is referred to as the prophecy candle. It's purple, most likely because it represents... Again, somebody chose purple because purple is royalty, and and I'm assuming that's why it's purple. But it's called the prophecy candle. And, And it points us to the fact that when Jesus came the first time, he was coming on the foundation of lots of biblical prophecies that Messiah would come. It's also known as the hope candle, which I don't know if you noticed or you know when we were singing this morning Michael you did a great job of just of pointing to the hope theme but this first candle is referred to also as the prophecy candle uh or the prophet's candle but it's also referred to as the hope candle because hope christmas brought us hope or the 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 first christmas was the hope of all those early Believers in Jehovah and Yahweh, right? They they were hoping that God was going to send this anointed king. And so those prophecies gave them hope and pointed them to the hope of the coming of Jesus. And And so this candle points pointed them, if you would, the prof- prophecies pointed them to the hope of Jesus coming. But also for us, they're going to point us to the hope of Jesus coming again. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to follow along, I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 9, a really, really familiar Christmas passage. It's a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah. I'm, not going to, I'm really not going to spend a lot of time here. This is more of a topical message. But, uh, but I wanted to use this prophecy as an example and kind of set the stage for what I'm going to be sharing this morning. So Isaiah chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, starts like this. It says, In the past God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of the Midian defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government, the peace there will, and of peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and for, and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I chose that passage this morning because uh, at least for us as committed believers, verse 6 holds the real true meaning of Christmas for us. Verse 6, of course, is the verse that says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Something that we believe Jesus fulfilled in every way. But I'm also choosing this passage because there's probably not a better passage to illustrate why so many Jews could not bring themselves to accept Jesus as that Messiah that they'd been waiting for. Even John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to Jesus, who was the one who came prophesying his coming, even he began to entertain doubts at some point along the way. And, and the reason for that is because of what it says in this prophecy. It says he would break the back of their oppressor and the blood-soaked boots and cloaks of the enemy would be fuel for their fires. Uh, to every rational Jew of Jesus' day, right? They they knew the oppressor was Rome, right? They knew the oppressor was Rome, and Messiah was going to remove that oppression of of Rome. And I think many men and women followed Jesus in those days because they they thought this. They thought Jesus is going to remove the oppression of Rome. And when he failed to do that, and when the Jewish leadership turned against him, I mean, I'm speculating here, but I'm wondering if some of the people who that day stood out there and yelled, crucify him, crucify him. I'm wondering if some of them are the disillusioned people that thought Jesus was going to remove Rome's Rome's power over them, and now they're disillusioned, and now they're angry with Jesus because he isn't the one that they thought he was. Many others, and again, I'm somewhat speculating here, I'm just, I'm thinking through this, but many others probably held out hope all the way till Golgotha, all the way to the crucifixion, right? And when Jesus died on the cross, uh, they might have thought something like this, what good is a dying Messiah? You know, we were wrong. He was a good man. He was a good man, but he was misguided. And, and he was a fool, nonetheless. They, they could have thought that because of his death. Of course, they were all wrong. Both the ones that were angry with him and the ones that had pity on him because he was wrong. They thought he was wrong. They were wrong. Okay, Jesus was the Messiah. And what they failed to see, because it was a mystery up until this point, was that Messiah would come at two different times to accomplish two different agendas. So today now we look back on, on prophecy from the Old Testament. I'm going to read you Daniel, for instance. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. And he, here's what Daniel prophesied uh, like 480 years before Jesus. He said, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that would have been by Cyrus, all right? the Persian king, until Messiah the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again, and and with the plaza and the moat, and even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince, who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, I mean, and again, I'm not trying to interpret this, and I'm not trying to say that there's not a, a variance of ways of understanding a dual fulfillment of this, but at least this passage is telling us that Messiah would be cut off after about 483 years. And again, people have tried to to do exacting numbers on Cyrus's the Cyrus' decree to return to the land and when Messiah died, when Jesus died. But, you know... It's right around 483 years. And and the prince that would come afterwards and destroy the city and the sanctuary, that was Titus in 70 AD when he destroyed the city and the sanctuary. My point is that Prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, people didn't understand this passage. They didn't understand that Messiah would be cut off. We look at that and we say, well, that's just a prophecy telling us that Jesus would die, that the Messiah would die. Isaiah 53 that speaks of the brutal death of the suffering servant is now so clearly pointing us to Jesus, the Messiah. The truth is that the Messiah would come in two stages in order to accomplish two very different goals. Now for the New Testament believer, for the New Testament follower of Jesus, this is really, really clear. And the New Testament makes it really, really clear. And so today for us, we're looking back on the coming of Jesus. We're looking back on his first coming, but we're also looking forward to his second coming. It's sort of like the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when we take the Lord's Supper, you know we're looking back with the Lord's Supper, right? We're looking back to the death and resurrection, or to the death of Jesus. But in that Lord's Supper taking, it all, Jesus said you're also going to proclaim the coming of the kingdom, right? So every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are looking back on His death, but we're also looking forward to the fulfillment of Jesus taking the reins over His kingdom and reigning on earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. So what I'd like to do this morning for a few moments is I'd like to take the two comings of Jesus and I'd like to compare them for us. I'd like us to remember and I'd like us to look forward to them. And I'd like us to remember the hope that the Old Testament saints, all those who were looking to God, I'd like us to look at the hope that they had, right? But I also want us to, I want us to find hope this morning as we look to the second coming of Jesus. So I'm going to compare them in three ways, and I'm going to begin with this. Let's compare the timing of their comings, of his, of his, not their comings, his comings, the, the timing of his comings. And the most obvious comparison and contrast would be that his first coming has already occurred and we're still looking for his second coming. Okay. I know I'm speaking the obvious there, right? But Jesus came the first time over 2,000 years ago. He was born somewhere between probably four or eight and four B.C. The exact date's been lost to us. He was most likely born between the spring and the fall not the winter, because the common practice of keeping sheep in the field, that didn't take place in the winter. Most of the time in the winter, the sheep were brought back uh, home and they were sheltered during the rainy, cold months of winter. But from spring to fall, they were often out in the fields, like we find the shepherds in the story. His second coming is yet to pass, come to pass, but we wait for it. And Jesus told us that while we are waiting here, The Father knew the best date for His first coming, and the Father knows the best date for His second coming. So if you will this morning at least grant me the premise that Messiah was coming in two different, coming on two different occasions for two different reasons, what I'd like to do is show you how both are foretold, both are predicted, both are prophesied, and what they what they mean to us. Now I've alluded uh, to some of this, but there are many prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Messiah. Let me just pick one of them. And this is probably a real common one for us. It's concerning his birth in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. You know, there's a whole story in the New Testament about how the, how the magi come looking for the uh, Messiah and they learn, well, Micah says he's going to be born in, in, in Bethlehem. So Micah 5.2 says, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, to, to, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So clearly Jesus fulfilled this prophecy concerning his first coming. And again, I'm not going to take time to prove this. I'm going to make some statements so you can validate them, see if I'm right or wrong on this. But there's over 45 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus' coming that He fulfilled. Statisticians have, and I've used this before, but statisticians have have said that the chances of somebody being born and fulfilling 45 of those prophecies, without those prophecies being made, ahead of time or being made by someone who knew, the, the, the chances of that are so remote. They said, just to give you a picture of what uh, statistically that would look like, it would be like putting quarters all over the state of Texas, uh, a foot deep, Painting one of them a color, throwing it out, and then telling somebody, go find the colored quarter, right? It's just statistically, right? That's a picture of how impossible the odds would be for someone to be born and fulfill the 45 prophecies of the, of the Old Testament. What about the Old Testament prophecies concerning the second coming? Of Jesus? Are there any? And the answer to that is yes and no. And let me start with a no, right? The no is there's no prophecy in the Old Testament that tells us Jesus is coming the first time. And then he's going to die, and he's going to return to heaven, and then at some point in the future, he's going to come back again and set up his kingdom here on earth that will be forever and ever. There's no prophecy that reads like that, unless, unless we want to take the Daniel passage that I just read you, but that would only be that he would be cut off, not that he was necessarily coming back. What we have in the Old Testament are prophecies of Jesus' second coming, and this is where the, this is where the problem for the Jewish followers of God lay. The, the prophecies are compressed. The first coming and the second coming are often compressed together. So it was hard to, you know, now we look at it and we see we pull those prophecies apart. But back then, they were they were all viewed as going to happen at the same time. So let me give you an example. So let's take the Isaiah passage that we started out with that I quoted to you earlier. It says, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. Uh, will be fuel for the fire. Well, Jesus didn't fulfill that at His second coming, but that's part of that same Isaiah 9 prophecy. So how do we deal with that? Well, we say that is a prophecy. That part of the prophecy is fulfilled in His second coming. That is what Jesus will accomplish when He comes again. Here's another example, again from Isaiah. Jesus quotes this prophecy in the synagogue. He's asked to read. He pulls out the scroll. He reads from Isaiah Sixty-one, I believe it is, and he says, uh, he 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 reads, he says, the Lord, the, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he stops, and he says, in your hearing today, this is being fulfilled. Well I mean, he's saying, that's about me, guys. I'm fulfilling this. But you know, he stops in the middle of verse 2. Here's what the second part of verse 2 says. And the day of our God's vengeance. You see, it wasn't the day of God's vengeance. So Jesus doesn't quote that because it wasn't the day of God's vengeance. He stops there. The day of God's vengeance, or the day of God's judgment, is the second coming of Jesus. And all the New Testament writers point us to it. They point us to the day when Jesus comes again, this time to rule the world, this time in judgment over the world. Remember, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but Jesus would say things. I didn't come to judge the world. I didn't come to judge the world. I didn't come into the day of vengeance. So, uh, but the New Testament writers, they understood this and they talk about it, but it's just not in the, New, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the prophecies of his first coming and his second coming are often compressed into one. Today, because we know Jesus is coming in two in two at two times to accomplish two different things, we can pull those prophecies apart, and we can see the part that applies to His first coming and the part that applies to His second coming. All right, as we compare both the timings of their comings, just a couple of thoughts that I want to leave with you. One is um, that they both will be at the specific time that God has planned. In, uh, in Paul's writings, this is what he says in the church of Galatia, he says, in the fullness of time, at the right appropriate time, God sent forth His Son. You ask the question, well, Jimmy, why was it 4 B.C., 8 B.C., whatever the date was? Why was it then and not 100 A.D.? Why was it not 150 B.C.? Why, why, why that date? Oh, I have no idea. Man, That's God's prerogative. But for God, it was in the fullness of time. That was the time that God chose. And so it will be with the second coming of Jesus. It'll be at whatever time that God has discerned, this is the time for the return of my son. And i tell you something else. Jesus told us of that fullness no one knows. You do not know. We do not know. Jesus at that time did not know what the fullness of time would be for the return of Jesus. Here's what what he says in Matthew 24. He says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also was the coming of the Son of Man to be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also. Will the coming of the second, of the son of man be? And it's going to be the same way in the fullness of time when people aren't expecting it, when people aren't looking for it. Jesus will come again. Jesus will come again. Let me, call, let me compare the attributes of his coming. That was the timing of his coming. Here's the attributes of his coming. In his first coming, he came veiled and little known. He wasn't heralded on his first visit, but at his second visit, he'll be announced in full view. So when Jesus came the first time, the angels sang about him to a few shepherds out in the field. The shepherds went and visited him. The wise men visited him a little bit later. Okay, But Jesus was born in relative obscurity when he came the first time. Matthew tells us that when he comes again, every eye shall behold him. Paul says of Jesus when he comes again, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. So the first coming, He was veiled. and the second coming, He comes announced. In the first coming, He came as a baby in swaddling clothes, God the Son veiled in human flesh. By that, I simply mean that He took on our human limitations, our humanity. But when He comes again, He's coming back as the God-man, with all His glory and with all His power. And whatever it is for Jesus to be fully human and fully God, Jesus is coming back with all of that on display. Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself even to the point of dying. So Jesus becomes like us in all our frailties. And you are frail. I don't care what you see in those movies where the guy falls from the second story and lands on a car and gets up and continues fighting. You fall out of the first floor and land on the car. You're not getting back up, right? You are frail. You are frail. Jesus came with all of his frail, with all of our frailties, right? He was tempted like us in every way, and yet he is without sin. He came with all of that. But when Jesus comes again, when he was asked, Are you the Messiah? This is what he says. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? He said, You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So he came first veiled in human flesh. I mean, he was God, but with all the limitations. I I don't know if there'll be any limitations at all in Jesus' humanity now, right? Because Jesus is is just as human as we will be in the resurrection. We'll we'll be like him when we see him. Anyway, I'm getting off into weeds here. I, I don't know what it's going to be like exactly for Jesus, but... He will not have the frailties of humanity in His second coming. Here's something else about comparing the attributes of His coming. The first coming, He came as a peasant, but when He comes again, He's coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So He's going to have the title. What I mean by that, and I mean no disrespect to our Savior, but He came as the son of a tradesman. He came as the son of a carpenter. I mean, that's slightly better than being the son of a brick mason, right, Mike? <laughs> I'm kidding man it's a great honor to be a tradesman uh, and really it's coming a day probably when tradesmen are going to, they're going to the guys that have the work right but anyway he came as a, he came as a guy who was just a trade he wasn't a king he wasn't in political power or authority he he just came as a, as just a humble carpenter carpenter's son right but when he comes again revelation says this about him i looked and saw that heaven was open and a white horse was there Its rider was called Faithful and True, and he is always fair when he judges or goes to war. He had eyes like flames of fire, and he was wearing a lot of crowns. And his name was written on him, but he is the only one who knew what the name meant. The rider wore a robe that was covered with blood, and he was known as the Word of God. And he was followed by the armies from heaven that rode on horses and were dressed in pure white linen. And from His mouth a sharp sword went out to attack the nations. And He will rule them with an iron rod and will show the fierce anger of God all-powerful by trampling the grapes in the pit where wine is made. And on the part of the robe that is covering His thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I mean, that is, that is a, a picture. That's a graphic, symbolic picture. But it's not the picture of Jesus being born as a helpless babe dependent on his mom and dad being born in a stable placed in a manger that's not Jesus at his return one more comparison I believe the first time he came in submission but when he comes again he's coming with all authority he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross you know, I don't, we, so in some context this morning, I was talking with someone about this. You know, but Jesus, maybe it was in our prayer meeting we were talking about this. Jesus, I mean, he came as a babe and he humbled himself and he came in submission, the Bible says. He submitted himself even to the point of death. Jesus came submitting himself. And, and I tell you, if there's anything that ought to motivate you to be a humble man or a humble woman, it's the fact that Jesus was willing to humble himself. And, and to become submissive, the Son of God, the Creator of all the universe, taking on human flesh, was willing to submit to us as creature. I mean, what what a, what a model of just humility and servanthood. Anyway, that's how Jesus came the first time. But you remember what he said right at the very end before he returned to heaven? He said, "All authority has been given unto me." So when Jesus comes, he's not coming again. In submission, he's he's coming with all authority. And finally, let me compare the purpose of his comings. And maybe this is maybe this is going to be the most uh, important part of this talk. But um, the motive of Jesus' first coming is really really clear to us now. I mean, it was just it was so clear. It's clear in the Old Testament prophecies. It's clear with what Jesus said about himself, right? But but I think the The reason why people had such a hard time with Jesus coming in two different settings for two different reasons was because his his first coming, the purpose for his first coming and his second one, they've been conflated and and they're not exactly the same. Jesus came. Let me use his own words. Here's the purpose for Jesus' first coming. Luke nineteen ten. Jesus, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John 3, Jesus again, for God did not send his son into the world. Well, I'm assuming this is Jesus and not John's words, but for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And even in the announcements to Jesus, I mean, to Mary when Jesus was to be born, Gabriel said this to Mary You shall call his name Yeshua, for he it is, it is he who will save his people from their sins. Here's the motive, the purpose for Jesus' first coming. He came to save us. And he told us that he was going to do that by giving his life as a ransom for us. That's how he saved us. He gave his life a ransom for us, a ransom from death. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. And because each one of us have sinned, each of us will die. Ezekiel 18.20, a person will die because of their own sin. A child will not be guilty because of what their father or their mother did. And a parent will not be guilty because of what their child did. The right things a godly person does will be added to their account. The wrong things a sinful person does will be charged against them. The penalty, the consequence of our sin against God, against going against His perfect design. Remember last week? about leaving His perfect design to do our own thing, right? The penalty is death, okay? A person will die because of their own sins. They'll be eternally separated from God forever and ever and ever. Listen to God's description of what Jesus would do for us in His first coming, Isaiah 53. You know this well, but let me just encourage us with it. He, and I'm, let's just put His name there, Jesus, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed." We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Dropping to verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, make and through, and. Though the Lord excuse me, makes His life a guilt offering, He will see His offspring and prolong His days. That's talking about the resurrection. It's talking about us. And the will of the Lord will prosper in His hands. For He bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. You know, the people didn't realize that was the Messiah. People said, that's not Messiah. That's not how Messiah... Messiah is going to conquer. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. Now we look back and we see Isaiah 53 is such a clear and compelling description of what Jesus did for us. It's it's just undeniable. Isaiah 53 is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus came to offer you forgiveness for all the wrong you and I have done and grant us eternal life. He came to break the spiritual powers of darkness in our life that have ruled over us. He came to give us the ability to overcome our sin and overpower our sinful behavior in our lives. He came first to break the spiritual power of Satan in our life, to spiritually bind the the strong man. Jesus came to save us. That was his motivation at his first coming. We want to, we want to conflate that, or we wanted, the, the, the people of God wanted to conflate that and say, well, yeah, he's coming to save us, but he's coming to judge and, and, and to put an end to all sin, et etc. Et at his first coming. We know that he did not. Jesus said, I did not come. I did not come to do that. I did not come to judge. I did not come to condemn. I came to save. So his first coming was coming to save us. All right? What about the motive for His second coming? Unless you forget, this same Jesus who is God, right? I mean, He's both loving and merciful and kind and gracious and patient and good. And I could go on with every great attribute. But the Bible says He's righteous and just and He's true. And He says that He will judge our sin with death, the wages of sin is death, literally. So, literally, when he comes, here's what he's going to do. He's going to, he's going to judge his enemies. He's going to put his enemies under his feet. So he came first to save us. When he comes again, he's coming to destroy us. Here's a prophecy. Here's a prophecy from Malachi chapter four. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, with all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness. Uh, will become, excuse me, I didn't read it right, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them a root or a branch, but for you who fear the name, my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out playfully, jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for there, they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. The last chapter of Isaiah, God is talking about the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to what he says. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make will remain before me, this is the Lord's declaration, so your offspring and your name will remain. We're going to get to remain in his kingdom. All humanity will come to worship me from one moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, says the Lord. As they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me, for their worm will never die and their fire will never go out and they will be a Horror to all humanity. The unrighteous angels, the unrighteous people who have rebelled against God, they will be destroyed. And they will die the second death at the coming of Jesus. And He will cast them into the lake of fire. He will cast them into hell. That is His agenda at the second coming. Jesus is coming to judge when He comes again. He came to save us the first time. And if it appalls you, and if it it bothers you that God is coming to judge, I don't know what to say about that, because that's what He says about Himself. He's coming to judge. So when He comes again, He's coming to judge. He came to save us. And you say, well, why has it been 2,000 years? He tells us why it's been 2,000 years. It's been 2,000 years because He's just giving Man after man, and woman after woman, and child after child. He's just giving us opportunities to respond to His grace that's been poured out upon us. He's giving us opportunities to say, yes, there is a Creator, and yes, I want to follow Him. He is giving you opportunities. And people mock us that it's been 2,000 years, and mock us is fine. But Peter said, hey, you mock all you want, but the reason why Jesus tarries is because He loves you. Because he's patient, and he's giving you opportunities to, to come to him. But judge, he will. And that's the purpose of his second coming. Here's another purpose in his second coming. He's coming actually to rule his kingdom on earth with all authority and power. You know, there is an intermediate state. There is an intermediate time between when Jesus left us and when he comes again. In theology, that's called the intermediate state. You know, But when the intermediate state is over and Jesus comes again, Right? Here's what He's coming to rule on the earth. He's coming to resurrect all of his men and women from every generation. He's coming to resurrect us back to, to physical embodied life on this world, in this world. And this he will remove the curse, and you'll never die. And there will be no more death and no more sorrow and no more pain and no more suffering and no more your mother-in-law suffering, Ronnie. And and I'm going to get to see Shep again. And I'll get to be with him again. And everyone that you've loved, that you've lost, that follows Jesus, they're going to be resurrected to life. And Jesus is going to reign over us. Yeah, we're going to reign with Him. I have no idea how all this is actually going to work. All I know is this. When Jesus comes again, He's coming to reign over His kingdom in person. Right now, he reigns from heaven and God is sovereign. He, everything is under his control. There's nothing that happens that, that, that God is not at least at some level permitting, if not causing, right? But, uh, and people are usurping. I mean, they are, they are not ruling the way he wants them to rule. But there's coming a day when God is going to destroy all of his enemies and he himself will rule in righteousness over our world. And the final thing I said about His coming is this. When He comes again, He's going to do away with all... And maybe this is just part B of this point I just made, but He's going to do away with all sin and rebellion. And He's going to bring in a future of peace and joy. There's a lot of disagreement over whether when He comes back, is there going to be a thousand years of the world continuing like it is, except Jesus is reigning over this? Or does He institute the final kingdom when He comes again? And I'm not really trying to get into that argument. I'm simply trying to say that the purpose in his second coming is to fix this world and to do away with all this sin and rebellion. And, uh, you know, Romans 8 tells us that the world is under a curse. And we see it everywhere around us. We see it what's happening in Israel with Hamas, we see it in Ukraine and Russia. We see it in our own country, this divide, this, this absolute almost like hatred of people one for another. When we see this, then Jesus is coming to do away with all of that sin and selfishness and that curse. And, and you know what? He's going to make all things new. He's going to make all things new. And, and the world is going to be like it was always meant to be. When God created it before our sin messed it up. And I tell you, everyone, that is our hope. You know, the the first candle of Advent is the candle of hope. And it looks back on the hope that our Old Testament brothers and sisters had as they looked for the coming of Messiah. Really not even understanding it all that greatly. Not even understanding how His coming would be twofold. Not understanding how God loved the Gentiles just as much as He loved the Jews. I mean, But they were looking with hope for the coming of Jesus. We're looking with hope for the coming of Jesus too. But we're looking for the hope of His second coming. And the hope of His second coming is not that He's, he's saved us. He's coming, well, I guess He is coming to rescue this world and to make it right. And that is our hope. You it goes in time, every one of you, Every one of you is going to die. If Jesus tarries, we're all going to die and we're all going to say goodbye to each other. And we're all going to lose each other. And some of us are closer to each other because we're husband and wife or we're father and daughter or we're, you know, we're sister and brother. And we're really close to each other and the pain is going to be really, really tough when we lose each other. Jesus is coming to save us from all of that and to fix all of that. And that should be your hope. And we should not be ashamed of it. We should not be scared to talk about it. Listen. I know I struggle with this. Oh man, I'm really this isn't in my notes. I struggle with it. I struggle with the balance between Jesus came to set us free now from sin and, 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 and its dominion over my life, right? It's not just pie in the sky one day, right? No, it's now. Jesus wants to set us free now so that we can walk in joy, so we can have good marriages, so we so we can so we can raise our children the way he wants us to, so that our children will follow after him. I mean, he came to do all of that now. But I'm telling you, don't lose sight of this, which is that he's coming to fix this world and we get to live together with him face to face forever and ever and ever. And that should be your hope. You should be hoping in that. You should be looking for that. I should be looking for that. We should be reminding ourselves, even as the Jews, the the God's people of the Old Testament and Gentiles who were God's people, as they look to Messiah coming, we need to be looking for his coming again with hope with hope. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, and our hope is that he is coming again. So this morning, I just encourage you, and I remind you at this Advent season, to hope in Jesus, to hope in Jesus, and to hope for his return, to look for him and long for him. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.